Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Well, welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as we say around here, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas, behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravindra, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have an outstanding chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We do have a great chat room, and both Andrea and I are there waiting to greet you as you walk through the door. Actually, you don't have to speak up if you come observe the chat room, um, but we do like it if you do at least say hello, but it's totally up to you, but it is a good way to get some more information, um, and perhaps if you have questions for the guest, you can post them there, because I know lots of you are kind of shy about calling in. Um, so yes, do come join us, provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. In this week's spotlight, our attention turns to the matter of peace, personal peace and world peace. I've argued for years that world peace would uh, never be possible unless the nations of the world could agree on some basic value system. I naively thought that a first principle of values that everyone could agree on would be something like, you know, we should all have the right to live, shouldn't we? I thought that everyone could see the value inherent in guaranteeing the right to live to every human being on the planet. Well, naive is exactly what I was, for it's clear to see that our world is not prepared to make any such concession. Just this past week, our president compared the brutal actions of ISIS to Christian actions taken against blacks in America and during the Crusades. His quote, Lest we get on our high horse and think this is unique to some other place, remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. And in our home country, slavery and Jim Crow all too often was justified in the name of Christ. Close quote. Now, historians and theologians were quick to point out that nowhere in Christian doctrine does the promise of reward exist for killing, and they made many other differences. But, you know, the Koran, on the other hand, does offer doctrinal support for beheading infidels, non-Muslims, and martyrs are promised 72 virgins in heaven. However, the real point to me comes down to why would someone justify or rationalize the death of another human being as though this is to be expected in this day and age based on what went on a thousand years ago or based on what's gone on sometime in history? What makes it okay today unless our world leaders see no end to the differences that lead to such abuses? Put a man in a cage and set him on fire, videotape it, and send it worldwide. Okay, then. Is true personal peace possible in a world racked with such atrocities and violence as we see reported from somewhere in the world every day? Let me qualify that some. Is true personal peace possible for the informed citizen today? 
I mean, hey, if you just ignore the world and find your private Walden Pond, so to speak, maybe you could so insulate as to be dead to the needs of the uh, of others, dead to their needs due to your ignorance, and then the world might seem more peaceful and less likely to impinge upon your quietude. But what if you choose to do all that you can to make the world a better place, to go to the aid of your neighbor, to contribute positively to the world, instead of isolating in the hope that the world will never seek you out and you will never be the one in need. It's not an easy thing to find personal peace while participating fully as a citizen in today's world. We are hardwired in such a way that we often sense, actually even feel the pain and suffering of another. Our hardwiring will deliver emotions when we hear of a child being violently abused. But with the media and the systematic desensitization that goes on showing traumas and tragedies and over and over again, we may well learn to override this mechanism. But that may be only dulling our empathy and diluting our resolve to act in a proactive fashion. My life has evidenced to me that personal peace is best achieved when we know that we have done our level best to make a difference, one person at a time. Indeed, I was recently asked, how do you know your life has any meaning? My answer is simple. You know when you can look on your life and find that it has made things easier for others. My peace comes when I meditate or put my head on the pillow at night and know that I have done all that I can, so the rest is up to God. My peace comes when I seek forgiveness for my errors and weaknesses, knowing that in the next moment I will do my best to be, to live the life, that in some small way makes a difference. Where does your peace come from? Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, your spotlights have so many different angles that there are, there's lots of different places that you can go um, and talk about. When it comes to r- religion and world peace, I have decided, you know, I've told you you know, often enough that I don't believe in formalized religion at all. I think there's too many issues that can come up, at least for me. So I dropped out of formalized religion. But if I had a religion at all today, it would be one that just preached life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone. And that's why I am so proud to be an American today, because that is the most fundamental concept. And I think that is that is something that we should all say is a definite. Everyone should have that. And if if someone is trying to deprive others of those, you know, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then they need to go. And I can get very upset about some of the stuff that, that is going on in the world right now. I think we're actually being desensitized to some of these atrocities that occur. And the way I see all of that would be every time someone is killed for being an American then we have been personally attacked. Me, you know, my family has been attacked. So when Ambassador Stevens was raped and killed, well, he that happened to him because he's an American, because he's representing us. And that's not acceptable. It's all to do with extended family. That attack on him was an attack on me 
or someone that I care about, and I think we need to stand up and do something about it. I'm not one of these people that thinks, um, well, just create happy thoughts, and everything is good in my world, and yeah, to go back on that old one, having my clean sheets isn't in- enough when I hear about that poor Jordanian. I mean, I don't know much about him. He's Muslim, you know, but just a different kind of Muslim. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. It's wrong, 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 and the world has to speak up in order for there to be real change. It's not going to be... Well, I certainly agree with that, and I don't think justifying the actions based on somebody else, you know... Uh, well, whatever. Let's not get political. Moving on. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Lorna Byrne, and we spoke about her life with the angels. Abraham wrote, I just love Lorna. She is so sin- sincere. CB commented, I like the interview with Lorna Byrne a lot. I hope that what she is speaking about is true. Guess none of us will really know until we experience it ourselves. R.K. wrote, there's something about Lorna's interview that just sounds really genuine and inspiring. I would have liked to have had more specific kinds of answers as opposed to general ones, but I have a feeling that this speaks to the fact that she's not trying to give convenient answers. Amini wrote, I love that lady. I have read all of her books. Teresa wrote, I saw her speak in Glasgow. Received a blessing on my forehead from her. And just a few minutes ago, while tidying up a storage cupboard, found her gifted signed prayer card. Great timing, Eldon. Yeah, that that is really pretty good timing, isn't it? Michelle wrote, lover. Cindy wrote, if this woman is not the real deal, then I'm not alive. She's amazing. Jan wrote, "Your your shows never disappoint. Edith wrote, I loved your newsletter this week. It inspired me to try again when I had given up. Thank you for what you do. You know, thank you, Edith, and, and all of you out there for your letters. But for all of you, our newsletter is free and generally packed with resources and ideas for living a better life. So if you're not on our mailing list, join today. Just go to Eldon Taylor, dot com and choose free newsletter. Mike wrote, I must compliment you on your InterTalk technology. I approached it with great doubt, and yet I have seen it work so quickly that I am coming back for more. Roxana wrote, I love Eldon's work. I particularly love his recordings, Have It All, and Soaring Self-Esteem. He is always affirming me being the best that I can be. Lois wrote, I've been using your Intertalk CDs for a few weeks now, and I can't begin to articulate the changes in my life. Dr. Taylor's technology is an amazing gift, and I will be eternally grateful for them. I'm currently using the Success Series and have begun the Genius Learning Series and lots of others relating to physical changes that I'm working on. I've applied to an MBA program that I've contemplated for many months, and I'm scheduled to take the GMAT later this month, which I am confident I will do well on. Many thanks to Dr. Taylor and Intertalk. They're truly allowing me to create my heaven on earth. Well, we love that, Lois. Heaven on earth is what we all deserve. Thanks for your feedback. Now, this letter came in as a result of posting today's show. Mark wrote, Mr. Taylor, I recommend reading what the Bible says about death. Jesus was God in human flesh, and he called death asleep. Death is an unconscious sleep until Jesus returns. 
talking to dead people is not from God and is not subject to private interpretation. All right, well, we'll ask our guest about that today, Mark, and thanks for your feedback. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, Eldon at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you again for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, Induced After Death Communication. A Therapy for Healing Grief and Trauma with Dr. Alan L. Botkin. Dr. Botkin received his Doctor of Psychology degree from Baylor University in 1983. For the next 20 years, he worked in private practice and as a staff psychologist for the Department of Veterans Affairs in the Chicago area. He is currently the director of the Center for Grief and Traumatic Loss in Libertyville, Illinois. His copy reads, quote, while some people call me Dr. Botkin, most of my patients call me Dr. Al. I like that because it is less formal. People who know me would never say I am formal. I am actually the opposite of formal and perhaps to a fault. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. My doctorate is from Baylor University. After earning my doctorate, I worked for 22 years treating combat veterans with PTSD in a VA hospital. First and foremost, I am a trauma expert. I have done nothing but treat trauma and profound grief for about 30 years. During that time, I treated people who suffered from horrors that other people cannot even imagine. That is what I have done and what I still do. Believe it or not, I feel I have the best job on the planet to witness people on a regular basis turning tears of suffering into tears of joy is all I need to keep going and loving what I do. Close quote. All right, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Alan L. Botkin. Hi, Eldon. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's indeed my pleasure, sir. We've been looking forward to this. You know, I kind of have to, uh, you know, start out this way. You, we, we attempt to get three things from our guests. Uh-huh. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to begin, if you will, tell us about yourself. What was your childhood like? Were you popular in school, athletic, involved in extracurricular activities, and the like? Who was Dr. Al when he was a boy? Well, uh, boy, you know, no one's ever asked me that question. But um, I, 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 I had a great childhood. I grew up in a, a fortunate circumstances. I mean, it's not that my family was rich, but we always had enough uh, to get by. And uh, um, I was an athlete through and through. Uh, you know, I went through Little League and Pony League and basketball and baseball. And uh, and pretty much through much of my adulthood, early adulthood, I became uh, a gym rat. <laughs> I was always doing something. Uh, in the gym or, you know, working out, lifting weights. And uh, actually it got to the point where uh, I, for so many years, I overdid it so much. I'm uh, extremely arthritic now and don't move around really well. No. But you know what? I, I would, I, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it the same way. I had a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, I remember it was the first the first day, I realized I couldn't even go out and, uh, on the basketball court anymore. My back just couldn't handle it. 
I think it was the very next day I started writing my book, so I found something else to uh, get myself involved in. Well, that's good. It's a great book. We're going to talk about the book uh, in depth today, but I, I have to ask this. Because of the nature of your book, were you raised in a religious family? Uh, did you believe in an afterlife? Uh, tell us about that that subset of your... Uh, well, you know, when, when, when I was uh, in grade school and through junior high, you know, my parents... Uh, uh, required I and my siblings to, you know, go to uh, church and Sunday school and so on. And we w- we went to a Lutheran church. And probably early in my life, I was a believer. And uh, but um, as I got through high school and college, uh, I I, be- I became somewhat skeptical, and I started looking around a little more. And I remember one of the first courses I took as an undergraduate was a course on world religions. I wanted to learn what, you know, what other people were thinking around the world and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I, um, I guess I see myself not as a, uh, a formally religious in any way at this point in my life, um, but I do have strong uh, personal spiritual beliefs, and um, I, th- I like to think that the beliefs I do have are evidence-based. So okay. it's, you, a little, you know, it's a little more of a kind of a scientific kind of point of view on all of this stuff. Right. Um, I mean, your career is specialized in treating grief and trauma. Right. Uh, the kind of stuff a lot of people just run, run away from. They, you know, they're not interested in even hearing about it. You know, right. just bury my head and forget about that. Right. And, and you've dealt with this, you know, firsthand. You heard today's spotlight. Yep. What say you when it comes to finding personal peace in a world racked with the horrors that exist out there today? Oh, boy. You know, I think that it's all about relationships and and if 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 we're judged on anything it's it's how we treat other people and uh, people familiar with the near-death experience know that the life review is an important part of that uh, near-death experience and in the life review people experience every moment in their life every feeling they had in each moment and the feelings they caused in other people they actually feel those other feelings that other people had, and that uh, it can be viewed as um, uh, a, a judgment that we all go through. It sort of suggests the idea that the idea that many of us have that we're separate entities uh, um, isn't true. That we are all, in some ways, uh, very fundamentally connected to each other. And the only thing we're judged on, I believe, from um, what I can gather from near-death experiences and after-death communications, again, is how we treat other people. That's all that matters. But that that idea is central to many religions as well. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't contradict. Uh, Religion. So you're, if I if I may, you're basically saying um, you're going to find personal peace when you make other people's lives easier. Kind of what my bottom line was, or or not? Absolutely. Uh, you know, when I when I heard you talking about that, um, you know, f- from where I'm coming from on this, I I absolutely agree. 
you know, it's it's all about helping other people. It's all about being good to other people. It's all about um, treating other people how uh, we would like to be treated. Absolutely, and I and I I, I think that is the way to a world peace, whether. Um, the people are anywhere close to accepting that is another issue, but um, I, I think that would be the only way to achieve it. It's difficult when you want to think of, you know, I, my background, my use of my education was largely in criminalistics. Uh, mm-hmm. So when you know, when you think about maybe this nation should be a world police force and see that these atrocities don't happen but then you think about what's involved in that the actual mechanics of it and it's really it's really a balancing act to be in the world and and do your very best to want to help others including eliminate these atrocities while at the same time maintaining that place where you know, we can say we have equilibrium and we feel at peace. Have you found that to be a major issue in dealing with trauma victims? Um, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, if, 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 if anything interrupts a peace of mind for an individual, it's, it's experiencing a trauma. The world is no longer a safe place to live in. Um, our deeper parts of our brain, our fight or flight mode, kick up, kick on. Um, you know, do we attack? Do we retreat? And 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 people with like PTSD, you know, don't feel safe in the world. They they've learned to not feel safe, and they become hardwired to not feel safe. I'm going to ask you to hold it on that, Dr. Botkin, so we don't mm-hmm. get kicked out by the computer. we got a hard commercial coming up here. When we come back, though, please, we'll pick that up. We're speaking with Dr. Alan Botkin about his life, his work, and his book, Induced After Death Communications. A great read. You're going to want to get your hands on it. You can learn more about him by visiting healingafterthewar.org. Remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Ravinder and I love supporting causes we believe in. We both feel the pain when we see an animal abused. Call it empathy or what you will, the pain is very real. We both also celebrate with joy the wonderful stories of animal rehabilitation. Indeed, it can be goosebump time. We urge you to get involved and lend aid to your local animal shelter or in the alternative, make your donations to the Humane Society of the United States. You can read about their work and make that donation by going to www. HumaneSociety.org. You can make a difference, but only if you act. Thank you. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Alan Botkin about his life, work, and new book, Induced After-Death Communication. Now we ask our guests for three pieces of music, songs that have some special significance, real meaning to them. Music is capable of eliciting very strong emotional states, indeed, even arousing comatose patients. And our favorite music can say a lot about who we are. So now we just played Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, and not a very good production of it either. I, I heard, well, I didn't like what I heard. Why is this one special to you, Dr. Allen? How does it tell us about who you are? Boy, um, I was wondering if you were going to ask me that. Um, I haven't really analyzed it for myself. But you know what? It's, um, I, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Einstein. I've read a lot of his biographies and, and, and so on. And... Uh, uh, he, he once commented that he didn't like Beethoven. The emotions were too raw, too and too naked, and he liked Mozart, of course. But um, to, to me, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata just stirs up so many feelings—feelings feelings of beauty, peacefulness, you know, in some way, um, tragedy. It's, it's kind of all of life in, in the music. Interesting. So, so uh, if you know, to your loved ones, if you happen to be one of those in one of those vegetative states, this is the music yep. to uh, to arouse you. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You, or, 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 we or went... you know, or if I'm if I'm in a coma and I hear that, I'll think, well, maybe that's heavenly music. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to like that uh, very much myself. So. All right. Before we went to the break, you were uh, you were sharing with us the importance of, or I should say, let me digress. You were basically telling us how particularly PTSD patients find the world to be unsafe, and how that you know how those feelings, how those how those thoughts interrupt their peace. So go ahead and unpack that. Okay. Um. Particularly, and I'll talk about combat veterans for a while, because I spent about 20 years of my life treating combat veterans with sure. PTSD. Um, when you go in a combat zone, combat situation, um, you need to be effective to keep your own butt alive and those of your buddies. And one of the, one ways that people adapt to that situation is they become angry and they become numb. And that makes you a more effective fighter. Now, the problem is, is you find yourself in situations where um, fear, actually terror is a better word, terror and fear become overwhelming. And, and when you lose people you care about, um, your, profound, your profound sadness sets in. But while in a combat situation... You, you, you need to keep the fear and uh, the terror and the sadness at bay because if you let those emotions overwhelm you, you're going to be ineffective and there's a good chance you're going to get killed or other your buddies are going to get killed. Right. So in some ways, PTSD in a war situation is very adaptive. It, it keeps you alive. It has survival value. However, when people come home <clears throat> after the war... Um, those uh, combat reactions, uh, uh, responses, don't automatically shut off. The brain, in a way, becomes hardwired for those. 
And what often happens with people I worked with is over the years, as the anger and numbing subside, more painful feelings come to the top that have been pushed away for many years. And those more painful feelings are typically guilt. And under, underneath that is often profound sadness. So when, when we worked with combat veterans, the idea was to get them to put their anger aside long enough and their numbing aside long enough to go ahead and explore their more core and profound emotions like fear and sadness and, and to directly address those. And we found that if we could successfully process those core emotions, um, per, more peripheral issues like anger and guilt and irrational cognitions and so on simply vanished. So um, the kind of work we were doing um, was really like psychologically taking a bullet out of somebody's gut. Right. We, we, we went to what was we went to the source of what's causing the problems, which are these more painful underlying emotions. What do you think, Dr. Botkin, about uh, the amount of uh, violence that is in our media today? It, you know, um, do you think that has a desensitization effect on our society? And as importantly, yeah. the the hero worship, the war videos, and so on and so forth, does that send the wrong message to our young people and and otherwise, you know, uh, offer reasons for them to get involved, to enlist, and, and well, do they yeah. do so with unrealistic expectations? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think in a way all the violence that we show on TV and so on um, does desensitize us to a certain degree. Um, uh, at the same time, um, you know, every now and then I, I have my favorite news shows because they always have a heartwarming story at the end. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I always am thrilled to hear that, you know, there are saints on this planet who do remarkable, loving, caring work for other people all the time, but we just don't hear about that right. so much. So. You know, it's kind of our news media kind of filters that stuff out, and we're always hearing the more sensational, violent kind of stories. Now, the, the combat veterans I worked with, on the other hand, um, to me, these guys were true heroes. I mean, they, they, their, their nation called for them to go do a job, and they went ahead and they did it, and as a result, uh, sacrificed a big chunk of themselves in, in, in doing that. Now, that, that's not saying that, you know, every chance we, a war comes up, we ought to jump in it. I'm not saying that. But those who do serve after the fact um, deserve um, all of our support, deserve all the credit and all the support we can give them. You know, the other thing is, is that, you know, I think about when we do decide to go to war, um, we generally don't factor in um, to the equation, the fact that so many of our men and women will come home with PTSD and will be psychologically very different, and, and they will lose that piece in their lives. And anytime we go decide we're thinking about going to war, we, we need to think about those psychological casualties, which are pretty much uh, a sure thing. Right. All right. All right. Let's uh, let's let's turn more towards your training 
and your book and the difference thereof. I, I mean, you're trained in the classical behaviorist schools, as I understand it. Originally. All right. So now <laughs> Skinner and the like. Right. You know, they're going to have little use for the path that you're on today. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so well, you know, let's tell us that story. What on earth took you from the behaviorist world of conditioning to the more what ephemeral well, you know, world? I, 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 when I started out as an undergrad, I was at the University of Kansas, and some of the um, the most radical behaviorists in the world have, uh, were grouped there. And of course, they had their own department. They weren't in the Department of Psychology. But they they would come and give talks, and, you know, at our classes and stuff. And I was fascinated by it. They, they claimed all you needed to know were the environmental contingencies of behavior. That's all you needed to know to understand and then treat people who had problems. Right. And it seemed so neat. It seemed so nicely tied off with a nice bow on the top of it. And everything just seemed to make more sense. It was simpler. It was scientific. And we were going to give up on all that old-time thinking that was just more mythology than anything else. And so now we had the science of psychology. And then um, over time, primarily in working with patients and clients in different settings, as as I went through my training, uh, it really came to a head when I began working at a VA hospital as soon as I finished my uh, degree from Baylor. And uh, here I am, a fresh young uh, doctor of psychology, and, you know, I thought I had everything figured out. And all of a sudden, I'm working on a PTSD ward. And it seemed really obvious to me right from the beginning that the problems these poor guys were having um, had nothing to do with environmental contingencies and reward systems. It had to do with private mental events. They were reliving the war in their heads. And there's no amount of reward or punishment or negative reinforcement or anything that you can do to change that. I realized we had to get inside their heads. And, of course, a behaviorist thought that, you know, getting inside people's heads and finding out what was going on there was unscientific. So that's why they stuck with the environmental contingencies. But... um, if, if, if I was going to help these poor PTSD people, and uh, I had to get into their heads and find out what was going on. Okay, so now, you know, here you are. Uh, you're going to get into their heads. Tell us about the first time um, you had any reason at all to think about the value in therapy to speaking to folks on the other side something oh, you know well well first of all i'm, I'm going to put a slight disclaimer on this right at the beginning so in case i forget later okay um this whole after death communication thing is something i completely stumbled into and it's it's somewhat of a story it's going to take a little bit that's but, fine um, we've got the time i want the story wonderful um but at the same time to this day i don't claim that the the experiences my patients are having prove anything about the afterlife. Um, All I'm saying is that when people do have these experiences, they're healed to a degree that people in the field had not thought was possible prior to that. All right, let let me make sure. So it's all about the healing. 
anyway, yeah, let me make sure on this disclaimer that I'm understanding you. You know, for yeah. years and years, I have said it doesn't matter in a, when you do a past life regression whether or not that individual patient, if you will, client actually lived that prior life if they find a healing benefit right. as a result of it. And, and, is and, that and, what you're saying about yeah, your... Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Again, right. again, I, I work with people with horrendous traumas, horrendous grief issues. I worked right. with a woman who came home and found her daughter hanging by her neck dead in a closet, a 16-year-old daughter. That's the kind of stuff I've been working... And then combat traumas. So my only motivation and my only claim is is uh, the motivation is to help people who suffer. And yeah, what right. I'm claiming is that these experiences and this IADC procedure, that's what the book is all about, brings these people to uh, a feeling of peace and acceptance. Right. That, that's all I claim. And we, and we have published research that supports that and so on. I'm familiar with that. Okay. So, all right, now with a disclaimer in place, tell yeah. us how, how it happened, how it came about. Well, we had been doing uh, uh, a therapy called exposure therapy for a number of years on the PTSD unit. And this is an inpatient unit, so it's people with really severe PTSD, combat PTSD. And the idea with exposure therapy was you get your patients uh, to talk about their traumatic experiences in a safe and supportive environment. And the idea was um, with that sense of safety and so on and support around them, over time their repeated exposure or talking about the traumatic event, would um, the, the intense emotions would ease off over time. And we were finding that was true to some extent, but the work we were doing was absolutely horrific um, for our patients because we had them reliving their traumas and the effect of doing that was very small. They weren't getting a lot of benefit out of it. Then something new came along in the early 1990s called EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And that involved uh, what it looks like is you have the patients um, follow the therapist moving hand from left to right so their eyes are tracking left and right while at the same time they're privately attending to their trauma. And what happens is, is it was found that the brain rapidly processes through that trauma and there's a lot of neuroscience behind it which shows that pre and post EMDR, different, completely different parts of the brain light up. And what happens as a result is um, the reliving component, which is what the what which is what a traumatic memory is. You don't just don't remember an event; you also relive it emotionally. The EMDR took the reliving component completely out of the memory, and people would say afterwards, "Gee, doc, this is weird, but this is the first time when I think about what happened, it's finally over. You know, I'm not reliving it anymore." Right. And we have a lot of neuroscience that supports those very consistent reports. So anyway, I'm playing around with variations of this EMDR sometime in the early, mid-90s. And because some of it didn't make sense to me, and my intent was just to make this EMDR work more efficiently. And after having made five or six specific changes and, and getting better, even better results, 
what happened was my patients began reporting these after-death communications after at the at the very end of their sessions. And the first time it happened, I didn't even know what my patient was talking about. I didn't know what an ADC was, an after-death communication. I had heard of uh, near NDEs or near-death experiences, and and my patient's experiences kind of sounded similar to NDEs. Of course, my patients weren't anywhere close to dying and so on. But the first time it happened, I thought my patient hallucinated, and I was worried about him. And as it turned out, he had a great night's sleep that night and was better the next day and then the next day, and um, he was absolutely fully at peace with the traumatic experience that he that he had had. And so once uh, a, a certain percentage of my patients began having these experiences, I went back in my notes and I looked at the the difference between those who had the experience and didn't have the experience, and I noticed that I had done something different in those cases. So when I added that that last component, I found out that I uh, could induce about 98% of the people who came in to see me. And now that 98% didn't hold up for a number of technical reasons, but on the average, about 79, 75 uh, percent of people who undergo IADC therapy have one of these after-death communications. And it, it works equally well um, with believers, agnostics, and even atheists. Uh, there are a lot of people I worked with at the VA who said, you know, Doc, I don't, you know, this, this, this isn't going to work with me. I don't believe in that crap. And I said, well, are you willing to give it a try? I think it might help. Well, sure, if you think it might help. So... We'd go ahead and do it, and boom, they'd have an ADC experience. There's their deceased buddy talking to them in spirit. They can see him standing there. And their profound sadness uh, pretty much suddenly heals right on the spot. Lots of questions now, Doc. (laughs) First, I'm going to go back to uh, the letter that I read on the air. You know, Mark's letter while we're on the setup for the Mm -hmm. show today. Um he stated in his letter, talking to dead people is not from God, close quote. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to ask you is, uh, what are your thoughts on that letter? Well, I understand that that is a, uh, uh, a position that some Christians take. Um, I also know many Christians who don't take that what, what I see as a more hardline position on that. As a matter of fact, I have talked to uh, biblical scholars who have said that what I do is very consistent with the teachings of the Bible. And there are people who are, uh, know much more about the Bible than I who would cite passages that would contradict that statement and so on and so forth. But the bottom line for me is I'm not even claiming that these are true spiritual afterlife okay. experiences. And now I, here comes question I, number two. I, I'm just you, claiming that whatever they are, they heal people right. and, and relieve suffering. Okay, we have the boilerplating, okay? But now, mm-hmm. Dr. Botkin, this is provocative enlightenment. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to separate your disclaimer from your personal belief. You've done... Hundreds of these. Thousands. You have thousands, all right? And you so have heard uh, firsthand accounts, mm-hmm. and you've certainly had opportunities to weigh in on your own personal 
acceptance of the veracity of at least some of them. Yeah. So here we go. Personal right. belief. Is this communication from the other side? Okay. My response to that is this, and I, I don't mean to wiggle out of the question, but... <laughs> I won't let you. I, what's that? I say I won't let you wiggle out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but I am a scientist, and yeah. I, I'm a scientist to the core. So, um, and my personal beliefs come from my science uh, to, to a great degree. No. So when people ask me, you know, hey, come on, Doc, you know, do, do you believe these are real or not? What's your personal side? You know, we understand that professionally you don't take a side. Well, personally, I would say that the afterlife hypothesis, in other words, that these experiences are real, um, is the best hypothesis we have for these experiences. Now, totally so agree. Great traction. I'm calling it a, 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 the best hypothesis, and th there have been a large number of people that have come out with brain explanations for ADCs and near-death experiences and so on, and I, I, I formally studied the brain. In fact, I even considered being a neuropsychologist, so I, I know quite a bit about the brain, and a lot of those brain explanations just don't hold up, as well as the afterlife hypothesis does. Nevertheless, it is possible, in my belief, that we will find that, in fact, these experiences are, are brain-based experiences, and they're not true spiritual experiences. But you know right, what? Right, but for the moment, I think. But, but you're you know right. what? That that's still okay because it it, it still heals people. Right. It doesn't matter. It, so it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, obviously it doesn't, it doesn't. You get a lot of attention coming your way because it does tend to lend uh, credibility to the hypothesis, as you right. put it. Right. And, um, and, I, and, and I agree. I, I don't see that there is anything inconsistent scientifically with that hypothesis and what right. we know about science, right. um, even though there are those mechanistic inclined individuals that would disagree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that they're going to discover they're in a camp very much like the Skinnerian camp back in the 50s and this, what was it, 60s, I guess it was, right. uh, when it was touted to be the end-all, be-all. Right. All right, that said, now since you have all this brain experience, when we come back from the break, I'm going to ask you very specifically about the relationship between EMDR and REM cycles and okay. the work by Dr. Kevin Nelson, who suggests that NDEs are but REM experiences. Okay. You be prepared for that one, Dr. Bodkin? Yeah. All right. If you would like to know more about our guest, Dr. Bodkin, and his work and books, visit his website at healingafterthewar.org. Now, we have a video for you during the break all about induced after-death communication. You can check it out by joining the chat room, so just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. 
Inner talk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your talk today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Alan Botkin about his book, Induced After Death Communications. Write that down. Induced After Death Communications, a new therapy for healing grief and trauma. It is a great read. It is full, absolutely full of firsthand accounts of this methodology that Dr. Botkin has discovered and uh, how it has helped his patients. You can learn more about him by visiting his website at healingafterthewar.org. Now, Dr. Bodkin, or, we or, just put... or please add my main website, which is uh, in, induced-adc.com. Induced-iadc.com. No, induced, is that right? induced ADC. Induced ADC. Okay. So it's induced-adc.com. Correct. Thank you. All right. Well, that's good. I'm glad you uh, informed me of that. I uh, I had visited that site. All right. We just played your second musical choice, the Moody yeah. Blues, from their album Threshold of a Dream. Lovely to see you. Now, I know you're a psychologist, and you knew this was coming, and you had enough of a set-up time, so <laughs> analyze that one. <laughs> Tell us, how is this one important to you, sir? Well, you know, it's um, uh, it, to me the, uh, the that album is uplifting. It's spiritual. It's a profound, profoundly spiritual. It's uh, um, it always puts me in a good place when I listen to that. 
Well, that's a good enough reason, I suppose. When, when was the first time? That, I mean, how old were you when this music was out, and how do you relate to it? Well, you know, I remember um, being in a dorm room in college, and a friend of mine said, you need to, do you like the Moody Blues? And I said, who's that? <laughs> and she put on this album, I think, and I thought, boy, I really like that. So... <laughs> Um, I think I've loved that, uh, uh, the Moody Blues, ever since. One of the favorite things I ever did is my wife and I, uh, later in life, uh, which maybe uh, 10 or 12 years ago now, went and saw the Moody Blues play in the Chicago area. And, boy, was that a treat for me. And they had the whole original band was there in a 80-piece orchestra or whatever they had with them, and boy, was that was that cool for me. That was one of the highlights of my adult life. Gets the heart pumping, warm as the hands, huh? Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. Before the break, I, uh, I, I suggested to you that I was going to come back to you with a question about EMDR. Mm-hmm. Uh, your technique, as I understand it, is a modified form of you know, move the eye movement, you know, back and forth, or yeah. EMDR, and, 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 by, and by the way, it's not just eye movement. Any form of bilateral stimulation works. In right. other words, okay. some people wear headphones with alternating clicks. You can tap the backs of people's hands and, and so on, left, right, left. But it's that left, right, left, right thing that puts the brain into that higher processing mode. Okay. Now, that's been compared with... Um, the activity that we know that as REM sleep. Right. Okay. So well, well here... okay. J- just real quick, just to put some context on this, um, w- we know that when people dream uh, or REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, their brains are actually in a higher processing mode. Okay. And the brain is, does a much better job at integrating information when it's in that higher processing mode. Correct. The discovery of EMDR seems to suggest you can take a fully awake person, and if you can get her to move her eyes in a similar fashion, it actually puts her brain into a, that same higher processing mode, and we can use it while people are wide awake. So it's a very natural healing mechanism that it's just not always turned on. Right. Okay, So, but bottom line, we associate REM with dreams. Yes. Okay? So... Um, you know, we get a guy like Dr. Kevin Nelson, whose peer-reviewed research appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm sure mm-hmm. you know about it. Yeah, and I, and I spoke at great length with him. He is absolutely convinced that NDEs are really REM activity uh, produced by a, a brain that's winding down. You know, it's a mechanistic uh, process. And since there's such a strong mechanistic correlation similarity shall we say to what you're doing and what yeah. his work was do you think that that suggests that uh you okay. know okay go ahead. I, I, okay I, I have two answers to that number one is people who have spontaneous adcs which occur to people randomly are not at all rare and they occur to about 30 percent of the population and people who come and see me and get induced adcs those experiences are the same, and they're almost identical to near-death experiences. So, mm-hmm. first of all, my response would be, people who experience IADC, um, th- th- their brains aren't shutting down, and their brains aren't naturally going into uh, 
you know, some kind of death state or deprived oxygen and so on. But the more important issue here is he related the occurrence of increased um, remintru- or increased sleep paralysis to um, NDEs. Now, when I worked at the VA hospital, now the, the sleep paralysis, um, or it's also called hypnagog- hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations, right. occur right. when people are just either waking up or falling asleep. In that threshold, right. Yeah, and what happens is, is their dream material, they're, they're partly awake and partly asleep and dreaming and their dream material comes alive in their bedroom. And so they can be very frightening and scary to people because it looks more real than a regular dream because it's happening in one's bedroom. Well, when I was at the VA working with traumatized veterans, there was so much um, hypnagogic hallucinations. Um, uh, uh, It was such a high percentage, percentage of uh, the guys I worked with had these. And... They're actually somewhat rare in in the general population. So my thinking on that at the time was that um, trauma, being traumatized, somehow interrupts sleep, which then causes more of the sleep paralysis, hypnagogic hallucination stuff, because their sleep is disordered. Now, many of these people, their traumas were severe enough that they also had near-death experiences. So the cause, it's not that REM intrusion or hypnagogic hallucinations cause near-death experiences. It's, 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 there's a third variable involved, and that is being traumatized causes hypnagogic hallucinations and is associated with NDEs. That's why you get a correlation between NDEs and sleep paralysis is because both of them have an identical cause. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And in a sense, arguably, dying is a rather traumatic experience, and so Mm -hmm. it could fit with a hypothesis dealing with this. On the other hand, you know, one of the things that the skeptics might argue, were they to accept uh, the possibility of your work as being credible. And there, as you know, there's controversy there, although you are building more and more momentum by way of showing, well, you have shown efficacy by way of the care modality. It is it is those that would... You know, you would, know the, the only thing I would argue is it works, and it, it heals. Yeah, and, and I think of, from that perspective, right. you know, that's that's already been demonstrated. And, and right. if, if that's what we care about, well, then, you know, there isn't a question. But from the metaphysical perspective right. of all of this, arguably, one might say, listen, uh, these lucid experiences, IADCs, as you've turned them, uh, they come about uh, through an event quite different than dying. And right. so is this just the activity of the mind uh, finding ways to, um, you know, s- to, to provide comfort for terror, for trauma? You know, that is a reasonable hypothesis. Um. In, in fact, not only 
after-death communications and near-death experiences. There's something also called nearing-death awareness or deathbed mm -hmm. visions, mm -hmm. and people who work in hospice are very familiar with these experiences. But NDEs, deathbed visions, ADCs, they, they're all almost identical in content. It's almost the same, same thing. And with maybe just only some uh, a slight variations. Um, now, it may be a person is facing his or her her own death. Uh, in well, in, de in both death, deathbed visions and NDEs, or or you're suffering from the loss of a loved one, and it may be that somehow miraculously the brain creates an experience to heal that profound pain. It, that may be true. I, I would not deny it. And it, again, as a scientist, that's a hypothesis that's certainly reasonable and possible to me. I think the afterlife, afterlife hypothesis it, 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 uh, explains the data much better. But no, that is possible. And you know what? That could the mechanistic be scientist is going to grab that. He's going to call it out, and it's Occam's razor. Now, I, I'm, yeah. I don't have you well, know Occam's any jeopardy razor. here, yeah. so you I know, can come out and say I'm convinced that the afterlife hypothesis, uh, as you describe it, has more traction than this one. In fact, I'm convinced that if we were to apply the same rules that we do in a court of law. Um, right. beyond a reasonable doubt that the afterlife right. hypothesis is our best explanation, and a jury of 12 would certainly conclude so. So let me ask you this. Let me, and and, and now, fact, there, there, there's an attorney you might be aware of, Victor Zamet. Yes, yes, I am. Who, uh, yeah. is, who uh, concludes that the afterlife hypothesis is beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, but, I know. I, I, I had yeah. dinner with Victor, and it was my idea, indeed, that... You know, the work that he does in the new film that will be released comes out based on that beyond a reasonable doubt. But, okay, uh -huh. let's back up. Okay. Uh, let's, let's say that you wanted to give support to the afterlife hypothesis. You now were going to become a protagonist for that. What evidence from your personal experience could you marshal up that would support that hypothesis. We've attacked it. How about supporting okay. it? What can we do there? Well, uh, um, I, I actually wrote a paper on this once, and I think I had about eight different reasons, and I might only think of two or three right now. Okay. But, but um, first of all, it doesn't matter what a patient's belief system is. In other words, near-death experiences, after-death communications are the same regardless of what your beliefs are. It, it, it's cross-cultural. So you could be Buddhist, Taoist, Shinto, Absolutely. Christian, and, doesn't and it's matter. pretty much the same. Sometimes they use different words to describe the same thing, but essentially the these experiences, and including deathbed visions, are all identical cross-culture. Now, okay. generally when the brain produces experiences, it's kind of like looking at a Rorschach or an inkblot test, we tend to put things into an ambiguous situation that we think belong there that are based on our beliefs and expectations and so on. That's how human perception works. 
Mm-hmm. So the idea that there is universal consistency with these experiences is one of the strongest arguments um, uh, for the afterlife hypothesis. Now, it, 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 on the other hand, I suppose someone could argue, well, if it's brain-based, you know, we're, all humans are essentially wired the same way, so when we're in uh, a stressful situation, that that kicks up in a way that's very similar, you know, across people. But, you know, the, there are other things that happen. For example, when people have ADC experiences, um, IADC experiences, they generally don't get what they want or wanting or what they expect the experiences is going to be like. It always comes across as somewhat unanticipated and even kind of surprising, like, oh, I didn't think my deceased father would say this or say that. Sometimes uh, my patient even disagrees with the, the um, advice from the deceased. For example, I worked with a guy who uh, he and his wife were divorced and he was relate, related to the death of their son and who blamed who and all that. And so he left his wife, wife and in the ADC with his deceased mother, the mother said, you know, you need to reconcile with your, with your wife and, and get back together. It wasn't her fault. And he, after the experience, he opened his eyes and said, I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I had another guy who um, sometimes you don't, they don't understand the message from the deceased. Um, wh- one guy was asking his father for advice, and his father said, use your tools. And the guy opened his eyes and said, use my tools. You know, I haven't worked on a car in 30 years, and my tools are rusting in the back of my garage. Why would he, you know, tell me to start using my tools? So I induced the experience again, and he went back and asked his father what he meant. And his father said, not those tools, the tools you're learning in therapy. So mm-hmm. if, if, if these are somehow brain-generated uh, uh, experiences, is, um, they would somehow a, a brain explanation would explanation would have to um, uh, cover and explain all these contradictions and complexities that are are actually pretty typical of IADC. Right, of course, a Freudian could pretty well fit that last one into how you know our unconscious subconscious works. So perhaps. Um, I guess you okay. know. Now, now there, there's another thing called uh, uh, their experience. There, many people have IEDC experiences that seem to uh, indicate um, or, or to provide information that the patient didn't even have or couldn't have had. For example, I've worked example. with a few. I've worked with a few people who. Um, had an AD, induced ADC with a, a lost uh, friend or loved one, and sometimes another person would show up and say something like, "Hey, you know, tell my mom I'm okay where I am." And da da da. da. And my patient would open his eyes and say, "Why was he there? He's not dead. You know, how could that be?" And then mm-hmm. we would soon later find out that indeed that person had died after doing a little research. And that happened like five or six times, and they were all hits. There were no misses. It wasn't, like, there, what that, it wasn't like, what's that person doing there? And, and we found out, indeed, the guy was still alive. I mean, no. I mean, in all cases, the person had indeed died. 
Right. <laughs> so statistically, <laughs> if you have five for five, right. how do you call that coincidence? And, right. And, you, you know, and, and to me, that's where the real evidence comes from. You know, right. we had a Dr. Lerma on the show who told us that a, a patient of his in surgery, um, you know, d- died on the table. Uh, he was actually rolled out of the room and sent down to the morgue. Right. Um, and, and he awoken, or awakened, I should say, uh, in yeah. the morgue, and he later told uh, Dr. Lerma about a coin, I believe it was a quarter, maybe it was a half dollar, that was sitting up high um, in the operating room, way yeah. above the view if you're just on the ground. Yeah. Uh, it was covered with dust, and Lerma went in, got on a chair, got up there, and sure enough, there was the coin. You know, that's just one example. Those kinds of things really argue old, that consciousness uh, uh, is not local. Yeah. There's an old, uh, the most famous of those, and that goes way back the furthest, is the old gym shoe story where somebody during surgery went out of body, and they, I don't know, they were on like the 20th floor or something, and, and the guy drifted outside the building and saw this funny-looking gym shoe sitting on a ledge you know, 20 floors up, and the guy thought, you know, how in the heck did that gym shoe get there? You know, that's weird. <laughs> and so, but anyway, the guy was uh, resuscitated or came you know, came back and so on, and he told uh, the staff about the gym shoe, and they all thought he was a little crazy, but some nurse went and looked out, oh, somehow got the window open and looked out, and there was a gym shoe there just as he described it. Yeah. You know, uh, th- there was another um, series of a uh, um, kind of, informal experiments we did when I was uh, still working at the VA. And what we would do was I would be working with a patient and we would have uh, an observer also move his or her eyes at the same time. And we found out that the observer, as long as they were getting the eye movement at the same time, could eavesdrop in on my patient's private ADC experience. And describe it exactly the same way. Oh wow! So that's like two people observing the same, very detailed, very idiosyncratic, you know, not the typical ADC kind of experience, and the observer saw the whole thing. How, how do you explain that? What, and, and, well, do you um, even try? Th- there are two ways of explaining it. Number one is that the afterlife is, is in fact, the afterlife hypothesis is correct. And if you have two people observing the same thing, then there must be some objective reality to that experience. It's not just a brain-based experience. Or there is an alternative explanation, which is that it was some kind of telepathic thing. Parapsychological. Well, where the observer was just simply picking up on the patient's experience, not an objective, you know, deceased existence of a deceased person kind of thing. So, um, yeah, you, you, but but e- either way, whether it's something telepathic going on or whether the afterlife is an objective reality that two people can look at at the same time, either way, that's pretty profound. Yeah, amen to that, that's for sure. Uh, I've got a host of more questions for you, but we've also got a break coming up uh, in 30 seconds. So, I'm going to ask you to give your website again, your preferred website, and then we'll okay. go to break. Wonderful. What is that website, oh, oh. sir? 
www.induced-adc.com. And the I, book. I, Go ahead. I'm book, sorry. And the book is Induced After Death Communication, A Miraculous Therapy for Grief and Loss. And it's a great read. You're going to love this book. All right. When we get yeah, back. It, it, uh, and it's also an easy read. It was written for the general public. Some people say they sat down in the morning and finished it by the end of the day. And it's cheap. It's only about $14. <laughs> well, it's a compelling book, and I think it's <laughs> well, compelling because it's story after story after story, and when yeah. we come back, we are going to talk about those stories. Okay. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back after paying some bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. What a drag it is getting old. We've been chatting with Dr. Alan Botkin about his life, work, and book, Induced After Death Communication. In this half hour, we will take your call, so if you have questions of Dr. Botkin, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback. A great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there 
And let me know what you think of today's show. All right, Dr. Al, we just played the Rolling Stones from their album, Aftermath, Mother's Little Helper. Okay, tell us. How does this one tell us about you? Well, first of all, I wish there was a little yellow pill that would make everything okay. It doesn't (laughs) appear to be. Um, uh, um, There's also a big part of me that's just good old-time rock and roll. Um, and it goes way back to the 60s. I, I even like the old 50s stuff. Um, I'm, but I'm old, and which fits to that song. It's a selection you picked. What a I don't think it you're is old. old. But, <laughs> That's uh, my favorite jogging music, rock and roll <laughs> from the 50s. Yeah. And uh, But it, it's just good rock and roll, and the, the, the whole album, Aftermath, is uh, it, every song on there is good, and, and that's why I chose that one. <laughs> Okay, well, but th- th- again, there's, a gets... rock, th- there's a rock and roll part of me, absolutely. That's the rock and roll part of you. All fact, right, I, sir. Matter of fact, I remember being a very little kid, and I was over at my friend's house, and they put on Elvis Presley's Hound Dog, and uh-huh. I strangely found myself dancing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this music makes me want to dance. You know? That's and great. That's th- cool. Th- that that was my first experience with rock and roll. Uh. You know, we last week we had a, our guest on the show was Lorna Byrne, and Lorna tells the story of how she's seen angels all of her life. And she, you know, mm-hmm. she's from Ireland and in the United Kingdom. She's very, very well known, yeah. well known here in the states. But uh, she said that, uh, you know, she there was some music in her music she chose. There was some music that just caused her to want to dance. And I asked her, I said, yeah. "Okay, well, do your angels dance with you?" And she's, oh, yeah, of course. Nobody's ever asked me that, so I'll tell you the truth. They dance with me as well. Yeah. I, You know, some music causes us all to dance. It's that simple. I think that's, you yeah. know, it, that's yeah. one of the unexplored areas yeah. That, of yeah. psychology we really should be looking into yeah. more because music does have a profound uh, reach Absolutely. into who we are. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. It, it, it reaches us. emotions that other things can't reach. Absolutely. Oh, amen, 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 amen. Uh, you have a school. I want to. I want to give you a little bit of time on that. Uh, you're actually training other therapists now uh, yes. to do uh, induced after death communication, and, they're, and all over the, they're all over the world at this point. Right, and you're certifying them, and you're seeing that they have the right kind of training. It's right. flesh that out a little bit, unpack it, uh, give us, you know, okay. give us your okay. commercial, and let let our audience okay. know anyone out there okay. who might, you know, be okay. dealing with PTSD and or some other. Okay. okay. First of all, first of all, when it comes to training, I, as a matter of fact, when I first tried to get a, my book published, many publishers said. Um, this isn't going to work because you wrote a book and then it, then they, then you say, if you want to go experience this, go to a therapist. And can't you write the book where the reader can do this on themselves? <laughs> and you know what? If, if I could have done that, I would have done that. However, the bilateral stimulation or the eye movement, whether it's EMDR or IADC, is extremely powerful. And if you have no training in mental health, stuff can come up that you don't recognize or you don't know what to do when it does. Now, both EMDR and IADC are extremely safe 
when it's done by people who are fully trained. As a matter of fact, we've never had a bad reaction out of many thousands of cases at this point. But my first duty is to not cause harm. So if I teach people how to do this on themselves or other people, there there is a chance for harm. And even though I could write a book that um, every you know, uh, 95% of readers could have an ADC experience on their own. If one of those people commits suicide, to me, it's not worth it. Again, though, if in the hands of people who are ad- adequ- adequately trained, it's an extremely safe procedure. So um, I do train people who are licensed therapists. Now, that means psychiatrists, psychologists, um, MSWs, um, uh, master's, uh, master's degrees in nursing in, in the psychiatric area, um, MSNs they're called, um, LPCs, uh, licensed professional counselors. I train anybody who's officially licensed, not just psychologists, but anybody who's officially licensed in the mental health field. And I also ask that those people, before getting IDC training, complete the first weekend of EMDR training. So they get the basics of how this bilateral stimulation eye movement works, and then I take it from there and move them to a, kind of a higher level with it. Um, the, to, to become uh, certified in EMDR, it's actually two separate weekends with case consultations and other requirements in between. I don't require full EMDR training, only the first weekend, which provides the basics, because I take it in a different direction after that anyway. Now, if people want to have the experience or are in grief or who have been traumatized, go to my website, inducedadc.com or induced-adc.com, and I have a list of therapists all over the world who um, are fully trained in this and who may be much closer um, to where you live. Everybody listed on my website is, um, every therapist is licensed and uh, uh, fully IADC trained, and again, they're all over the world. Um, There are many in Europe, uh, many in the United States, and so on. Matter of fact, IADC is very big in Germany. Um, there is actually an Allen Bakken Institute in Germany that is devoted to IADC training and research and therapy. So that, that was that was a huge honor when the Germans, you know, put together that um, institute, and it was all they're doing, not mine. And that's probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me in, in terms of my moving IADC forward. Uh, my book has been published, uh, obviously in English, but also recently in Italian. French, and the Germans published it a number of years ago. Hopefully we'll get the Spanish version sometime soon, but IDC is on the move. We're getting more and more scientific research done, and we have more science, uh, research, research plans for the future. Um, if you are interested in undergoing IDC, it generally only takes two sessions. Um, however, um, you need to be screened before you come in for an IADC session. It's generally a good idea to wait at least six months after a loss before getting IADC. 
and there are a few other reasons uh, that may uh, make IADC not work so well with people. So if people call me or email me through the website, um, I take people through the screening procedure or and uh, to come and see me and or direct them to people, other IADC therapists that are much closer to them. All right, excellent. Now, I want to ask you something that's kind of implied mm-hmm. uh, in, in part of your explanation right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we there can be psychological reasons uh, that this would not be appropriate treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also the possibility that someone encounters the dark side in their uh, after-death communications. Have you had that occur? You know, um, believe it or not, I've done thousands of cases myself. I am in touch with IADC therapists all over the world. No one has reported a dark or evil or negative ADC. They've all 100% have been loving, healing experiences. No exception so, so far. Now, if if one does come up, I want to know what I want to know that, and I will tell people that well, we did have one dark ADC, but so far, not at all. Do you think there is a dark side on the after afterlife? It seems to me, again, this is hypothesis mm-hmm. based on both my induced ADC experiences and um, near death experiences, that there is no dark side or hell. There's no doesn't seem to be a hell as we think of it and so on and there's nothing dark about it but there does seem to be a p- place that Raymond Moody called the realm of bewildered spirits mm-hmm. it's not it's not a it's not a spiritually bright area it's kind of gray and people don't seem to be as in a state of you know total joy as everybody else and these are generally people who did a lot of harm to other people during life, which is probably the result, which I mentioned very early in the program, of the life review. These are people who hurt a lot of other people. And even though they're not in a dark, hellish place, they are in a place where they haven't moved on like other people, other spirits or other entities. Therapeutically speaking, for a moment, Dr. Bodkin, when you're dealing with someone who has lost a loved one, or you're dealing with someone uh, post-traumatic stress disorder who maybe has taken many lives in in the name of his country, uh, and, and you introduce the idea of an afterlife, there's a sort of cushion of comfort that's provided there. Okay. Uh, um, and, and as you explain okay. the afterlife, it, it even becomes more comfortable. Okay. How do you think a secular therapist actually handles or deals with that, okay. that element of the human psyche? Okay. As a matter of fact, um, most people I train to do IADC, kind of like me, um, believe that the afterlife hypothesis is probably the best we have going, but we don't have that, we don't have proof. Sure. Which, of course, is a mathematical term, not a science term. Right. But um, I, 
there was a social worker where I worked who was very good at ADC, at IADC therapy, and, and he didn't really buy into it. You know what? It didn't matter. It didn't matter what, what he believed. His patients still had the same kind of experiences. Um, now, where was I going? What was the original question? How, how does that secular therapist okay. deal well, I, with... Go ahead. I just gave you an example. Yeah, yeah, I just gave you an example of how a, someone who doesn't buy into this can still be a great IEDC therapist. Right. And it, right. It, really, it really doesn't matter. In other words, the, the beliefs of the, pati- of the patients, the belief of the patients do- doesn't even matter. They're going to have an IEDC, an ADC experience whether they believe in this stuff or not because they're natural. They are naturally occurring experiences. And you know what? It doesn't matter what the therapist believes either. As long as that therapist takes the person through the, the, proto, the protocol, the procedure, uh, that person's AD, uh, clients are going to have ADCs you know, the same way. It really doesn't and, that's, and that's, what did you say, 85, 89, 88% of the time? Um, uh, I would say it's, Probably on the average now, given kind of recent information I have, I'd say 79 or 80 percent of people who come in for IADC have an ADC experience, regardless okay. of their beliefs. About 80 percent. Um, however, however, even the 20 percent who don't have an ADC st- still leave feeling a- an overwhelming sense of peace and relief, and the reason is is because the first part of the IEDC procedure is processing those core painful emotions that we talked about at the beginning right. of the show. Whether it's yeah. profound sadness or terror, we use the eye movement to process and change that and put it in a different part of the brain. So even those people leave feeling a whole lot better. Um, sometimes they're a little disappointed that they didn't also have an ADC, but um, their trauma or grief, traumatic grief issue is pretty much resolved at that point. All right, I have to turn to the chat room. I've got so many more questions here for okay. you, but I'm going to give some time to our fellows in the chat room. Okay. Mark says, does Dr. Botkin believe that consciousness is disembodied from the brain or is an embodied aspect of the brain and therefore dependent on the brain for its existence? Well, I, I read a book by, uh, and I've, I followed this uh, issue for some time, uh, 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 a physician, a cardiologist, I believe, Dr. Jeffrey Long, Jeffrey Long wrote a book called The um, Ten Proofs of the Afterlife. Yes. And one of his ten proofs was that people who have these very elaborated near-death experiences show no signs of brain activity, Zippo. None, zero. They're they're basically their brains are flatlined, and they still have these very elaborate experiences. So, to me, that just puts a little more weight on the afterlife hypothesis as opposed to a brain explanation. But, but, but again, I'm not saying that's proof of anything. Yeah, uh, I think you know. Generally, it's thought to be you know. If consciousness is uh, relegated to the brain, then it's a local event. If right. consciousness isn't, it's a non-local. And 
I think if I understand you correctly, you're basically saying, well, the evidence is in favor of it being a non-local event. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. All right, let's move on. CB says, is the observer emotionally tied in, or do they simply observe as they are not related to any of the experiences or people who are viewed? And then, I wait, think wait, I'm, wait, wait. Now, does that apply to that shared IEDC I talked about? Yes. Uh huh. That you know, whoever wrote that question is is absolutely brilliant. Um, it's interesting that in the cases that we did, the observer was emotionally tied in some way to the suffering that my patient was going through. He so was, in the five of five, they were all five were emotionally connected. Yes. In other words, they felt they, they felt empathy for the sadness the patient was feeling. However, we tried to formalize this by doing an experiment in which the observer came in not even knowing what the loss was and being com- em- emotionally completely disconnected from the, my client or patient I was working on. And right. In those cases, it didn't work. Now, okay, now, now the five that it did work with, they were. You say they had an empathic connection. Were they were were they family relatives, or could this just no, no, been? no? They okay. just heard the story. Okay, all right. They, they just heard the story, felt bad for the client, and they were emotionally in, involved to some degree. However, when they came in and they didn't even know what the loss was. There was no connection by a third person. And that's an excellent question. And one way of looking at at that is that somebody told me, as a possible explanation, is that the deceased person doesn't feel like sharing with somebody who doesn't even know what what, what it's all about. Sure. But, But they would have some reason to share with an observer if they are emotionally involved. Now, that's one way of looking at it. There are other ways, I'm, I'm sure, of uh, looking at it as well. But that's an excellent I find that question. really interesting. That's an excellent question that I have been pondering for years. Have you have you written this one up anywhere? I mean, well, I have a, a few brief cases when this first happened in my book. Yeah, I've, I've read your book, and I guess I missed that part about the yeah, empathic it, it, connection yeah. and the absence of a path. It, it, it may be under unusual experiences or something like that, but, you know, it's actually it's not uh, conceptually different from people who have shared near-death experiences or shared deathbed visions. Right. Now, I talk to hospice people or family members, is when their loved one died, they, they shared in their loved one's near-death experience. Yeah, the shared and, death and the experience, experience is something thing. Raymond Moody so, so, has been writing so, about a lot. So, so again, you know, there's a connection between people, you know, whether it's quantum physics or you know, or entanglements, or you know, we could go, we could spend like ten a ten hour show on all those possible theoretical explanations. But but it seems clear, you know, and also given the uh, life review that we are all profoundly connected in ways that we yet don't understand. Okay, moving on quickly because we're running out of time. Okay. Richard from the chat room says, 
Have you ever talked to a deceased person who in life was quite evil? Yes. And that's another excellent question. We have done that a number of times. We have talked, we have had deceased people come through that in, uh, were total sons of, sons of bitches. They, they, they were totally awful, evil, bad people who harmed many people in their life, including my clients. And what's interesting is that in all of those situations, the, that deceased person, the son of a bitch, comes through as loving, caring, fully aware of all the pain he or she has caused, and wanting to take full responsibility for it. And the reason for that, which makes sense to me in terms of a hypothesis, is all deceased people have been through a life review where they experience the pain they've caused in other people. You don't get away with stuff. If you cause pain in other people, it's going to come back to you. And when you have your near-death experience in your life review, that it's going to be a, uh, it's an eye-opener for those folks. All right, we're just out of time. Listen, everybody, get the book, Induced After-Death Communication, subtitled A New Therapy for Healing Grief and Trauma, by Dr. Alan L. Botkin. It's a great a, a, book. A, actually, there's an updated edition, and the subtitle is A Miraculous Therapy for Grief and Loss. All right. Well, maybe that's why I didn't get to read what you had. And be sure to visit his website, induced-adc.com. All right. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on the show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.